You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, visit sojournmontrose.org. With that said, let's jump into our sermon series. Uh, Like Reed mentioned, we've spent uh, three weeks, this will be the fourth week in our five weeks of time dedicated to the topic of revival. And we've gone to great pains really over the past uh, now four weeks to define revival very simply because uh, depending on what our church background is, that term might have some baggage, right? Either positive or negative. Uh, And what we've sought to define revival as over the past four weeks is simply this. Revival is the ordinary grace of God at work in extraordinary measure extraordinary measure. So all we're saying is that when revival comes upon a people, specifically the people of God within a place, what happens is that God's ordinary graces, the volume gets turned up. It goes to 11, as the band Spinal Tap would say. Right? So revival is the ordinary grace of God at work in extraordinary measure. And what we've also gone to great pains to understand is that revival is not something that we can manufacture, right? That no matter how clever we are, that no matter how dim the lights get, no matter how loud the music gets, no matter how much the preacher sweats, we can't make revival happen. And so we've said there's a big difference between a revival that is worked up by our hands and a revival that is prayed down by God's Spirit. And so what we're looking for is the latter. We're not looking for the pomp and circumstance of revival. We're looking for an extraordinary measure of God's Spirit working out God's ordinary grace. And yet, what we've also said is that although we can't work up revival, there are means of bringing about revival that we can devote ourselves to while we wait for God's Spirit. There are things that we can do to hoist the sail so that when the winds of the Spirit blow, we're prepared for this supernatural work of God in revival. And so we've talked about how prayer lends itself to revival. We've talked about how a pure longing, a pure heart lends itself towards revival. We've talked about how a devotion that is full-hearted and corporately shared with God's people lends itself to revival. And this morning... We'll talk about how suffering lends itself to revival. So let's pray, and then we'll jump into 2 Corinthians. Father, we're so grateful to you. We are grateful, Lord, that we can know the God that speaks things into existence. You are great and greatly to be praised, O God. And so we pray, Father, that these next few moments as we read your word, as we are ministered to by your spirit, that it would lead us to great praise for the one who is to be greatly praised, namely yourself. I pray, Lord, that as we talk about suffering, that you would be near to us. Lord, if there are uh, men and women in the room who need comfort, that you would comfort them by your spirit. And Lord, that you would counsel us on what it means to suffer well. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
So revival, by its very name, revival, implies that there is an ebb and a flow to the Christian life. So when we come to know Jesus, it's not that life all of a sudden goes to the mountaintop and stays there for the remaining 50, 60 years, however many the Lord graces us with. But rather that life following Jesus is more abundant, meaning that there are greater highs and lower lows in following Jesus. And so, we expect and we pray for times, periods of revival. Revival is not normative in the Christian life. But there is something that is normative in the Christian life, and I think, honestly, normative in all of life, that regardless of whether we're Christians in the room this morning or not, we've experienced, and that is suffering. Suffering. Suffering is a normative experience. It is something that by virtue of our presence on earth, alive in the flesh right now, we all have or will come to experience. And so, brothers and sisters, this morning the question for us is, how do we look the reality of suffering in the face and have it work towards revival in us. Paul's going to counsel us in 2 Corinthians 4. This is what it says in verse 7. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Now, we jumped right into the middle of Paul's train of thought. So let me explain what he's saying. We have this treasure, this treasure being the gospel, right? We have this gospel about Jesus, of Jesus, from Jesus, right? And we have it contained within jars of clay, that is us. The gospel is within us, within jars of clay, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Now a jar of clay, common household item, right? Essentially what is the Tupperware of the day, if you will. Everybody's got it, right? Regardless of sort of your your economic station, you most likely at least have some Tupperware in the house. And of course, in, in this day, the jar of clay, it's breakable. It's, 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 it's weak. It's finite in its nature, right? It's not something that you're going to lean on for a long time. And Paul says, we are like those jars of clay. We're weak. We're, we're ordinary in a sense, right? We're common in that, in that there are many of us and that we all share the same nature, this inherent weakness of our humanity. And yet, it's within that weakness, it's inside of that frail material, that frail construct, that the glory and the power of the gospel resides. Right? That's what Paul is saying in verse 7. And so, because of that reality, we read verse 8. Because... It's in this weak body that we contain the power of the gospel. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We're persecuted, but we're not forsaken. We're struck down, but not destroyed. And so, what we come to realize is that there's this great paradox of the Christian life. That we're weak, that we're frail, that we're like jars of clay, and that Within us, there's this power of the gospel, and because of that, although we are weak, we are not destroyed. Although pressure mounts against us, we're not crushed. 
although we are struck down from time to time, we are not destroyed. Why is that? Again, verse 7, because of the power of God at work in us in the gospel. And what is that gospel? Paul um, is using here some imagery for us that, that is very meaningful. In that, like we've already talked about, the jar of clay would have been something that anybody could have referenced mentally and said, yeah, I know what that's like. I've probably broken a few in my day, right? Had to re- replace those things, whether by accident or on purpose. But here's what we need to know a little bit more about this situation in that um, there's books in the Old Testament where we have all kinds of different rules, right? A lot of them that most of us probably skipped reading. <laughs> and there's all these rules and there's all these regulations about how one becomes unclean and how one has to go about becoming clean again, right? So maybe if it's for us, it's, okay, go sacrifice this many animals on this day, at this time, say this prayer, and then you'll be clean again, right? But it's also extended to things like household wares, right? So there's lots of detail and nuance. But here was the difference for a jar of clay. A jar of clay, there was no, like, there was no dawn, you know, there was no dishwasher to put it in. There was nothing that you could do to make a jar of clay clean once it had become unclean. And so the counsel of Leviticus is to smash it. You destroy it and you go make or purchase a new one. That's the only remedy there is for the unclean jar of clay. Now why does that matter, right? We're getting into some details here that if we're not careful, our eyes might glaze over. But it's a detail that is so important. Because see, the gospel that we're talking about is the gospel of Jesus who came down to dwell among us and took upon himself the jar of clay. What was divine became human, right? That nature that you and I share that is weak and that is frail and that is feeble, Jesus took upon himself the jar of clay. And yet, what we know of Jesus' life is that he lived a life that was perfect, right? Perfect according to the law. Utterly above reproach. There was nothing for which he could be condemned. There was no instance, no moment in which the jar of clay Jesus was made to be unclean. And yet, we see that he is crushed, shattered in his crucifixion and in his death. And the reason for that is because in the moment on the cross, there is a beautiful exchange that takes place where the cleanliness of Jesus is transferred to his unclean people, you and I, and where the uncleanness of myself and of us, both individually and corporately, gets transferred upon Jesus. And so in that moment, Jesus becomes unclean, not with his sin, but with ours. And the jar of clay is broken because it is unclean. And this is precisely why Paul uses this imagery here. It's because of Jesus becoming unclean that we're now clean, 
jars of clay that not only will not be destroyed, but cannot be destroyed because we can never be made unclean again. And so that's why Paul says there are many things that might come upon us. There are lots of things that might exert pressure upon us, brothers and sisters, but there is nothing that can make us unclean again because Jesus was made unclean for us. We're still fit for use in the household of God. You know that piece of Tupperware that gets spaghetti sauce in it? And you, just, you just throw it away, right? Because it's gross. It's always going to be red forever. <laughs> There's no point. Jesus cleans that out. And so we're still fit for use. In fact, Paul argues that we're even more fit for use now because of our feebleness and our frailty. It's the power of God that's on display, not our own power, not our own ability to muster the strength to walk through suffering. And so, brothers and sisters, we can expect suffering because it's a natural consequence of life in this broken world. We can expect it without fearing it. Because no matter what comes to us, we may be pressed, but we won't be crushed. We may be struck down, but we will not be destroyed. It's the sanctifying, preserving, saving power of the gospel that keeps fragile clay jars from being crushed in spite of the pressure. And so here's the question. If Jesus suffered in our place, if that's the gospel, why do we still have to suffer? I know it's a question I've asked. I'm assuming most of us have asked it at one point or another. 2 Corinthians continues to give us answers. Verse 10 says this. I'm going to take the last half of verse 9. We're struck down, but we're not destroyed. Verse 10, always carrying in the body of the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. And so Christians, we suffer now because the life of Jesus is still being lived in and through us. It's an aspect of our union with Christ. And in that sense, it is encouraging that we walk through it. Think of Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so, brothers and sisters, if we are united to Christ by the gospel, then his life is being made manifest in us. And so our sufferings are not haphazard. They're not something that Jesus looks at and goes, oh, oops. But rather, they're part of the divine plan for the glory of God being made known through his people. They're part of the divine plan of the life of Jesus being made manifest through his people. 
it remains God's plan that through the frail and feeble jar of clay, the surpassing power would be shown to belong to God. Which leads me to a second question. If suffering is natural, if it's something we're going to experience, and if it's something that specifically as Christians we're going to be experienced, we're going to experience throughout our lives, by virtue of our union with Christ, how can we, like I said earlier, how can we look that suffering in the face and allow it to work for us? Revival. Continue reading 2 Corinthians 4, starting in verse 14. We know that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self, our old self, is wasting away, our inner self, our new self, is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look... Not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And so, brothers and sisters, suffering lends itself to revival because it forces us to live for eternity and for Christ, which produces a new spiritual energy in life. It forces us to live for eternity and for Christ, which produces a new spiritual energy and life. I love that at its core, what makes Christianity so different is that it is not an escape from suffering that is being sought, like some other Eastern religions, but rather an acknowledgement of suffering, but a suffering that leads to glory. Hear hear the words from Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 5. This is what he says. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So neither Paul in 2 Corinthians, nor Jesus in Matthew denies suffering as a reality, denies insult, persecution. But both of them lovingly place their finger under our bowed chin and they lift it heavenward. And they say, look there. There is your reward. And, and And by doing so, they make it clear that this life's pain cannot touch that life's reward. In fact, what we begin to see is that there's this pattern, not only from Jesus and not only from Paul or from Peter, but throughout the Scripture, there's this pattern of suffering, right, preceding the glory. Blessed are you when you suffer for my name. Great is your reward in heaven. And remember who's saying that, right? This is Jesus who holds the universe up by his hand. So what is it that he calls great? 
Great is your reward in heaven. Romans 8, 16 and 17 says this, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, provided we suffer with Him, in order that we may also be glorified with Him. And so what is it? This wonderful, glorious good news of the gospel that we are heirs of God, that we are brothers and sisters of Jesus, and that we receive the same inheritance that Jesus' good work is due, provided we suffer with Him, that we also may be glorified with Him. James 1, verse 12, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Brothers and sisters, it's when we begin to taste this eternal perspective, it's when we begin to see that suffering is really a fitting room for a crown, that our hearts begin to open themselves up to revival. And so, if we're going to suffer, that's going to happen, generally because we're human, but specifically because we're followers of Jesus, and if it's that suffering that is drawing us into glory, if it's that suffering that is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory, way more majestic than we can imagine, then how can we suffer well? And that's where we're going to spend the rest of our time this morning, answering that question, how can we suffer well? I'm going to give you five things, and there's sort of some points underneath it, so it's going to get complex, but if you just get the five things, I think it'll be good. And the first thing is this, if we want to suffer well, we must first determine what kind of suffering we're enduring and how the Bible would call us to respond. So there are different kinds of suffering. There is natural suffering. There is suffering for righteousness' sake, like Jesus mentions in Matthew 5. And there is also suffering for unrighteousness' sake. And so we need to determine what kind of suffering we're enduring. And then we need to respond in the way that the Bible would call us to respond. So let's talk about natural suffering. Suffering that comes purely as a part of being part of a fallen world. Romans 8 continues to encourage us. It says in verse 22, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons and daughters, the redemption of our bodies. And so maybe this morning, brother or sister, you are sick. You feel the frailty of the jar of clay. You are weary mentally in distress, fatigued, emotionally spent. 
as a consequence of belonging to a broken world, what does the Bible call us to do in response? Look to your adoption. Look to the fact that you are not an orphan, that you are not alone, and that these things in your life have a sunset date. And that it's not only you that's groaning. It is your fellow brothers and sisters. Indeed, it is the whole creation that longs for that day to appear. Let that cultivate in you an eternal perspective. What if you're suffering for unrighteousness? 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 20 says this, what credit, it, what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? What credit is it to you if you sin and suffer for it? Pretty logical question to ask, right? Peter essentially is saying that it's of no credit to you. You're suffering for something that essentially has been brought upon you by yourself. It's a consequence of your action. Here's what I love about the gospel. Is that for many of us, we hear that and we go, oh man, I wasn't expecting to come to church today and feel guilty. And yet that guilt, that suffering and that shame that we experience is not meant to drive us away from God. On the contrary, it's the kindness of the Lord that leads us to what? Repentance. And so, brothers and sisters, this morning, if you're suffering for unrighteousness' sake because that sin that you've kept hidden is eating you alive or because that sin that you've kept hidden is now revealed to people that you didn't want it to be revealed to, repent and believe. Because the Bible tells us that it, if you confess your sin, that He is faithful and just to forgive you. And not just forgive, but cleanse of all unrighteousness. Brother and sister, you are the clean jar of clay in Christ. And so repent and believe. The latter half of that verse in 1 Peter says this, but if when you do good and suffer for it you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. So if you are suffering for righteousness sake, on the other hand, right, receive it with gladness. Receive it as though it's from the Lord himself and look to him for the reward. So if we're suffering for righteousness, we rejoice and we devote ourselves more fully to God because as Jesus said in Matthew 5, our reward is great in heaven. It's more than just that $5 allowance that your dad was like, yeah, don't spend it in one place, right? I mean, he's laying it, he's laying it down. Your reward is great in heaven. So the first thing we do is we determine what kind of suffering that we're enduring and how the Bible would call us to respond. The second thing we do is we remember the goal of our suffering, that there is something in mind, that our suffering is not meaningless. We've already established that by this point. But brothers and sisters, there is one of three things that God is up to in you if you're suffering. If you're a Christian in the room this morning and you're suffering, God is doing one of three things. He is either testing your faith, developing your perseverance, or he's perfecting you. Right? 1 Peter 1, 6-7, we read it a few moments ago. 
In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. If you are in any way suffering and still believing this morning, then God is assuring you that your faith is real. So your suffering is not primarily about God saying, here, this is what you deserve. It's primarily about God saying, look, you're pressed, but you're not crushed. You're struck down, but you're not destroyed. He's giving you a more perfect praise, right? That's what it says. That those sufferings may be found to result in praise, glory, and honor. James 1, verses 2 and 3, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. He's developing perseverance in you. James 1, 4, the very next verse And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, brothers and sisters. He's perfecting you by your suffering. And so now I think we begin to understand why the early church counted it a joy to suffer for Jesus, because they recognize that it's not God giving us lack so that we live into lack, it's God giving us everything so that we live into Him. How different would it be if we looked at our suffering this way? Which leads us to the third thing. We determine what kind of suffering we're experiencing and respond to it biblically. We remember that there is a goal to our suffering and then we rejoice in and we embrace that suffering because we're being revived through pain. Which is why the early Christians considered suffering a gift something being granted to them. This is what Acts chapter 5 says. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Rejoice and be glad. Great is your reward in heaven. Those words of Jesus should echo in our ears time and time again. Which leads us to the fourth thing. We determine what kind of suffering. We respond to it biblically. We remember the goal of our suffering. We rejoice and we embrace our suffering. And then we share our suffering. Right? which is maybe the most unnatural part of all of this because we don't want to be weak, do we? Some of us spend hours in CrossFit gyms trying to prove otherwise. Galatians 6.2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Brothers and sisters, when you hide your suffering, when you keep it to yourself, you keep the church from expressing the fulfillment of the law in allowing your burdens to be shared. A burden shared is a burden halved, brothers and sisters. 1 Corinthians 12, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. 2 Corinthians 1, though, adds a twist. 
We not only share our sufferings, but we share something else. This is what it says. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction, all of our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any way afflicted with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. And so, brothers and sisters, your suffering serves a purpose within you, but it also serves a purpose within the congregation. The Lord will always comfort His afflicted, and with that comfort, we are to extend the same comfort to others who are afflicted. Remember, suffering is normative, so that means that we're all experiencing it. It just takes one of us to say, you know what, me. And what, and what you'll hear is around the room, me too, me too, me too, me too, me too. And it's in that that we have then the opportunity to feast together on the comfort of the Spirit that is made available to us in our affliction. Because as 2 Corinthians says, for as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort. And so we share our sufferings, which leads us to the final thing, our sufferings and our comfort. And the final thing is this. We take heart. Nothing too magical about it. We take heart. We are strong and of good courage, as the word would say, because Jesus says this to us in his gospel, right? The gospel of John says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So imagine, imagine what kind of peace we might have if we understood suffering this way. Because the peace that Jesus has come to bring is not a peace that comes because of an absence of suffering. Rather, it's a peace that expresses itself all the more clearly in the presence of suffering. Why? Because He has overcome the world. And so although suffering is normative in this world, the reality is that Jesus, in His broken body of flesh, in His victorious rising from the grave, in adopting us as His sons and daughters to enter into His kingdom by His grace, He has overcome this world and He's making it new. And so we, with the whole creation, groan inwardly, longing for that day, knowing that it will in fact come because we have a God who is faithful, whose decrees come to pass. And so my hope, brothers and sisters, this morning is that we would walk into our suffering with new eyes. And instead of looking at suffering as the conquering army walking into our room, we would rather see it as the slave who enters in and has come to do God's bidding for us. Who has come to produce in us the glory that God intends for us. That is right now laboring for us. And that we would see that God does not 
in any way, shape, or form. Waste the suffering of his saints. There is an eternal weight of glory that is waiting for us. Rejoice and be glad. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this morning. I pray, Lord, that if we are in the room this morning and we are suffering, Lord, that you would encourage. Lord, that if we're Christians this morning, that you would remind us that there is a time and a day coming when that suffering will no longer be present. Lord, when you will wipe the very tears from our eyes, where you will remove every sickness and ailment and death will be no more. And that that would stir in us a pure longing that would express itself in a full-hearted devotion and a willingness to suffer and suffer well. Pray, Lord, that your hand of healing would be upon us in the inner self, in our new self. Lord, that we would day by day see the ways in which we are being transformed, the ways in which we are being prepared for an eternal weight of glory, and that we would come to the table this morning, Lord, grateful for your grace on display, the broken body, the shed blood, the proverbial clay jar smashed so that we could be made clean, and that we would rejoice and be glad because our reward is great in heaven not because of what we've done, but because of who you are. So Lord, be gracious to us. We're thankful for your son, Jesus. We're grateful for your spirit who comforts us. And we ask that you'd be near in the days to come. Make us a church, a people who suffer well for your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.